following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I'm excited to be with you again. If, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jason Suddeth. I'm an elder here, and I'll be stepping in for Bill today. Um, I love that I get to preach today or in this season. I was just, I know this is a really unusual thing, but I enjoy Christmas. Um, you know, like shocking. Uh, I just grew up loving Christmas. I, I will say it's great to, this is a beautiful stage. I am going to point out one massive flaw in it, actually two massive flaws in it. If you look to my left and to my right, there are two fake Christmas trees up here. I'm not saying if you have a fake Christmas tree, you're not as good of a person as if you have a real one, but I'm not not saying that. So take that for whatever you want. Uh, no, it's a beautiful stage. It's a great time of the year. I love this time of the year. I can remember as a kid just, you know that feeling? You just go in there and you just sit by the Christmas tree. Like the room, and it's on, the room's dark, the lights are on, and you just sit there. And you like take the gifts, and for some reason you shake them really hard, even though it's new electronics, which is not recommended by the manufacturer. And you just like, shit, oh, I know what this is. I got it now. But you still can't use it. Except for one kid I had in youth ministry years ago. Uh, my second, maybe second year in youth ministry, I had this really squirrely kid. Um, and I, I heard his last name. I was like, that's weird. I had a terrifying middle school principal who had that same last name. He goes, that's my mom. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I was good in middle school because I feared her so greatly. I don't know what the inside of her office looked like. But my imagination is pretty amazing there. Uh, it involves caves and bats, and it just was bad. Anyway, so he told me he disappeared from youth group for a while, and he came back. And I was like, where you been? What's been going on? Apparently, he was getting an Xbox for Christmas. And about two weeks before Christmas, it was put under the tree, wrapped up, and he decided, he was a really smart kid, he decided he was going to take it into his room, pop the tape open, pull the box out, plug it in, play it till about 4 o'clock in the morning, put everything back perfectly in the box, put it back in there, get the tape back on there perfectly, and leave it under the tree. This worked really well for almost two weeks. And a couple of days before Christmas, and a couple of days before Christmas, he gets it out, pops the tape, does all this sort of stuff, and then he hears his door open to his room at about midnight. And in walks mom. This has haunted my dream. I'm just kidding. Uh, but this, is, this would be terrifying. She, of course, took it away. He couldn't have it for weeks. He had to stay home. It was school and that. She was, and I just think, oh, my goodness. I remember that feeling of desperation to open those gifts. And we all remember that weird, amazing hope that was Christmas Eve, Christmas morning. Now, I bet if you're in this room and you're above the age of probably 18 to 20, you don't feel that way anymore, do you, about Christmas? It has a different feel. But all of life is that way, right? Hope comes very easy until you get deeper into life and you start to start think, man, it's difficult to hope. So we're going to look at a passage today that talks to these kind of people. How do you hope when you're aging, you're an older man, and your body begins to fail, and reality sets in that one day you will leave this planet? Or you're an older woman and you feel you are not heard anymore or forgotten or have been replaced. 
Or you're a young woman and your life is busy and crazy between job or kids. Life doesn't ever slow down and you don't see when it might. Or you're a young man and you are surrounded by things that can pull you down. You're surrounded by temptation and you know you've got no shot standing. Or you're in a job that owns you, that you do because you have other things that own you like credit cards and mortgages and student loans and bills. We have a lot of reasons not to hope. But what we're going to say today, very clearly, I hope, is that you have so much more reason to hope than not to. So we're going to do it in three things, okay? It's going to be a very simple thing. We're going to go to Titus 2 in a minute. The only odd thing I'm going to do, well, I can't promise the only odd thing I'm going to do. The only odd planned thing I have to do today is I'm going to go to the, the end of the passage first, and then we're going to jump back to the top of it. And here's where we're going to look. First thing we're going to look at is that there is a correct source of hope. There is a correct source of hope. And then after we do that, we're going to say, all right, what are some incorrect sources of hope? And then kind of mixed in the middle of it, in all of those, it's not really going to have its own point. We're going to try to look at some remedies to correct our source of hope. So we're going to start in Titus, if you've got a Bible or a phone, Titus 2, verse 11. It'll be up on the screen behind me as well. And I'm going to read 11 through 14. And we're just going to look at some correct sources of hope. All right, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? He's going to tell you. The appearing of, our, the, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So what we have here is described by John Piper is a hope sandwich with grace bread. Okay, a hope sandwich with grace bread. And so in the middle, we're going to get this message of hope, but surrounded it, we hear of God's grace. And I'm going to give you in here basically three reasons that you should hope, three correct sources, and they're all born out of this grace of God. So let's start with the first. It was in 11. I'm going to go back to 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. You've got a past tense word there, okay? Next, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you have this weird sort of combo of things there. You've got past tense, the grace of God has appeared. It's already come. It's here. And then you have this present tense thing in there saying, what is it doing? It right now, right now, today, it's training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright in a godly life. So your first reason for hope here is what God has done and what God is doing. The grace of God has appeared. That's happened. Christ has come. As we look at this Advent and we celebrate Christ condescending into creation, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering the grace of God has come. He has laid his life down. When we did our, um, after our confession of sin, we read Philippians 2 where not only did he become a man, and not only did he die, but he died on a cross. We remember what God has done for us. We remember, whether that be in the eternal sense in Christ Jesus, but we remember what God has done for us personally. We remember what our lives were like without him. 
We remember when we went from darkness to light. We remember when that guilt that owned us and that sin that just sat on your shoulders and lived there when Christ came into your heart and that was lifted and you were freed. This, is, this isn't a new thing. Uh, Psalm 77 is always where I go when I want to think of this. Psalm 77 is a really honest psalm. It's a really heavy song. And the first nine, voice, nine verses almost, it just, you can, you can feel the weight of it. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. You don't need to turn there or anything. I'm just going to read it to you. And I want you to feel this and then ah, the release to hope. And I want you to figure out why. Okay, that's what we're doing. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comfort, comforted. Sorry. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. My, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I can't talk. I consider the days of old, the years long ago when I said, let me remember my song of the night. Let me meditate on it in my heart. Then my spirit searches for it diligently. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased? Ooh. Are his, listen to this one. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious has he in his anger shut off his compassion? And then there's this little Hebrew word, silah, that means stop and meditate on this. So before you're supposed to continue in the scripture, you're supposed to feel the weight of what he just said there. Has God, has God totally forgotten me? Has his love ended? Has his promises, have they ended for all time? So after you pause, then you get this next section. Here's what you get next. Then I will say, I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder at all your works. I will meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our great God? You are the God who works wonders. You're the one who's made mighty among the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they deeply trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. You, yet you never put a footprint. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here's a man in complete desperation, complete and total, thinks God is lost. Are your promises dead? And what does he do to find hope when he's hopeless? Yet I will remember the works of the Lord. He doesn't look forward in this case, he actually looks back and says, wait, 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 wait. I remember what God has done for me. I remember what God has demonstrated in the world. If you walk in here and you're a believer in Christ and you feel hopeless, what do we do? 
we remember what he has already done. We look back to the cross. We look back to the empty tomb. We look back to our heart being brought from death to life. We look back to the moment where he walked us through a difficult situation. We look back where God provided where there was no way anyone should have been able to provide. We look back at every step of goodness along the way, and then our heart makes the same noise that his heart made, which was, oh, I remember. And I think back, I'm not a wildly artistic person. Um, so I look at this stage and think, <laughs> I, yes, I mocked the trees. I'm sorry. Uh, they should be real. Uh, but if you gave me six months to make this stage, it would look like an injured animal put it together. You know what I mean? Like a three-legged dog had tried its best. Uh, that's how bad it would look. So, but I do, I have some level of appreciation. And um, I've always wanted to go to France. And I've always wanted to see the Mona Lisa. But as you could imagine, if I spent the thousands of dollars to go see the Mona Lisa, I wouldn't, although you can't anymore, I wouldn't walk right up to it because now it's behind like three inch of bulletproof glass and there's guards around it with guns and all those sort of things. But 40, 50, 100 years ago, whenever you could walk right up to it, I wouldn't walk right up to the Mona Lisa and get right here and be like, I don't get it. It's, it's not that good. It's just brown and blah. Oh, wait, it's a different color right there. Uh, 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 you know what I mean? I, I would, you can't appreciate the Mona Lisa from right here. What do you have to do? Someone would say, you spent thousands of dollars. Step back. Take a step. And then when I step back, I'd say, oh, yeah, I see more of it. And as I would step back again and get the right distance away, I could notice the symmetry and the lines and the painting and the details and all of these pieces that make the Mona Lisa the Mona Lisa. And I think most of you, like me, struggle with when do we lose hope in what God has done? It's when we are stuck in this moment right here, and we know this day is going to be tough, and we know this week is going to be hard, and we know we're about to walk into a conversation with our boss that's not going to go well, or we know our kids didn't nap today, and because of that, they're going to be just so enjoyable, uh, or we know whatever it is, and we're, we're right here, and we have to step back, and we look back on the goodness of God, and we say, ah, now I see the picture. Now I see what it looks like. Now I see how it's done. And we see the beauty in it, and we see the glory in it, and we see what God has done. So there's one source. What has God done? What is God continually doing? Here's a second one. If you're still in um, Titus, go to verse 13. Here's what it says in verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So we get to our second thing. We first one was what God has done, what God is doing, and then this where hope is actually mentioned is what God will do. So this is a future hope. We have a future hope built in here. It's interesting that he calls it a blessed hope to me. That's redundant. It's not an accident. It's on purpose to show you this amazing thing. And it is the glory, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the appearing of that glory. I think back to the manger and how the spectacle of God putting on flesh, but yet being attended by shepherds in a dirty room with animals. That's not the second coming. The second coming will be louder. It will be bigger. It will be, in senses, in some sense, more glorious and it will be for all eyes to see. Do you find hope in that? You know, 84% of the people in our country believe in an afterlife. 
84%. A much smaller percentage, a much smaller percentage believes in hell. It's a much lower percentage. 84% of our country is walking around and they say, hey, what do you think happens when you die? And almost, almost nine, between eight and nine people out there will go, yeah, I think there's something out there. There's a heaven. It's probably good. Most people believe it's good. And strangely enough, if you ask people, are you going, yeah, I think I'd be there. Why? I mean, I'm a pretty good person. So, you know, we start picking at that question. It's, it's not a hope that most people have in heaven. It's a desperation, right? We live in the reality that one day we will leave this planet. So there's a desperate part of a human soul that says, you know what? I need there to be, there's got to be something. Because the Christian hope of heaven is bigger than that. Do we understand that? We're not hoping for a cloud and a harp. You know what I mean? We're not hoping for some angel wings up there. Here's your hope in heaven. Your hope in heaven is that before you existed, before the world existed, God came up with a plan. And in that plan was you. And he made you, knowing everything you would ever do wrong. And then, before you existed on this planet, he came down into our world, condescended, lived the perfect life, died for your sins, rose from the grave. But before he left, he told his disciples, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming again to get you so that you can be and feast with me and be with me eternally. And he went there and you've come into this world and through the power of his gospel, he grabbed your heart. He put his life through his spirit into you so that one day, whether you leave this world at his appearance or whether you leave this world before then, you will be with him, fellowshipping with him, attending with him for all time. Isn't that bigger than I'm not going to get sick or I can see a loved one I've lost? And please don't hear me. Losing our loved ones hurts. There's many of you in this room that you think it'll be great when I'm with the Lord and I can see my spouse or my child again. And I, we, that we are supposed to feel that. That's part of the yearning. But the ultimate goal, the glory, the hope of heaven is the return of Christ. And if you walk in here and you feel a measure of hopelessness, maybe you're not hoping well in the right thing. You get to be with your creator forever, who knows you more intimately than anyone else and has made you for him. Guys, I can't take that hope from you. Your boss can't take that hope from you. A creditor can't take that hope from you. These are A government can't take that hope from you. There's nothing that can take that. So why do we hope? One, what God has done in the past. Two, what God is doing for you currently. And here's the third reason. What God will do when he comes again. And if you don't feel this one, just as a a small step aside here, I, I just say this really briefly. If you don't feel that, like here's, some of you heard everything I just said there. It's, oh, here comes the guilt. I don't feel that way. Here's what I can offer you there. This is a piece of advice. I told you there'd be some remedies in here. Here's the remedy to feel that hope a little more clearly. The remedy is, if I don't hope in spending time with Christ eternally, the earthly remedy is spend time with him now. Right? The reason you may not feel that hope is maybe you're filling up on about an hour a week of hope. I, I can tell you in the middle of a bad week, if I come to church and, and listen to the music of Matt's team, 
up here and see those words, those blessed old amazing words and those new words or whatever they may be from, and hear those songs, something about the melody and the words, it, it starts to fill me up with a little bit of hope. You're probably in the same boat, correct? And then Bill will come up here and preach, and he'll open up this amazing book, and it'll remind me of the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. And I'll go, that's right, I have, I have hope in Christ Jesus. And I'll walk out the door, and I'm feeling really good, and I walk out the door, and I go to lunch with friends, and a lot of times we'll talk about it, and that even kind of reminds me a little more of the hope. And then a lot of times Monday morning happens. In fact, every day of my life after Sunday, a Monday has come. It's a true fact. Seriously, every time. Like every t- Sunday, and then we're like, what? Monday. Oh, it happened again. Uh, and then in the middle of that, I walk back into a world that doesn't have a lot of hope. And if my only fill-up of the week was Sunday morning, I'm empty by Saturday, right? Let's be honest. I'm empty by Sunday night most times. You got to refill. You got to refill. You got to think about, focus on. I told first service, in your car, if you're feeling hopeless in your car, remind yourself of the goodness of God. Remind yourself of these things out loud in your car. Just not, I said, just bob your head a little bit. People think you're just singing a song. It'll be fine. As long as the windows are up, no one's going to know that you're just like creepily talking to yourself. Like, you know what I mean? You'll be fine. You'll fool everybody. But remind yourself of the goodness of God. Tell yourself, preach it to yourself over and over the goodness of God. And then you can maybe let that hope grow in you. But you know what we most often do? And I say we, and by we I mean me. Um, What we most often do is instead we go to incorrect sources of hope. We go to things that we are offered as sources of hope that don't do the job. And for that, we need to look at verses 1 through 10. Okay, we need to look at verses 1 through 10 of Titus 2. I'm going to read through it very quickly, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick, there's several key words in there that I think are little warning signs of like, hey, don't fall into this source or be careful for this, out of 1 through 10. So this is Titus 2, 1 through 10. He's writing this to Titus as a letter. He's a teacher in the church. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of the Lord may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then verse 9, my version says bondservants, yours may say slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So we have this list of teaching to um, older and younger men and older and younger women. And some of it's a variety. Some of this is the same. Did anybody notice the word that was in there used four times or the term used in four times? Self-control, a thousand fake bonus points to you. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Yeah, self-control is used four times. Everybody gets told to practice self-control. It's really kind of interesting. The first one that jumped out to me is in verse 2, and it's actually directed at the older men, and it's sort of repeated in different ways. But verse 2 said, older men, you are to be sober-minded. 
Sober-minded doesn't necessarily have to do with alcohol. That word was sometimes used, the Greek word, to refer to alcohol. But it's really more to do with the clarity of thinking that you wouldn't have if you had alcohol in your system. The Greek word means, it means to be free from life-dominating or blinding forces in your thinking. To be free from life-dominating or blinding forces in your thinking. So the first thing he tells the older men, hey guys, you got to be able to think. You got to be able to think gospel clear. You have to be able to think clearly. So whatever is blocking or owning your mind, whatever is distracting or keeping you from seeing the truth of God and then living the truth of God, you got to change how you think. Now, what's really interesting here is our culture, you know, the, the way we deal with hopelessness, honestly, the most, to me, as I think about how our culture deals with its hopelessness, this is the number one way, in my unprofessional opinion, that I think they deal with it. I think it's distraction. I think we live in a very hopeless culture. If you got down to the American soul, I think there's a lot of hopeless people. So what do we do? We distract ourselves. If you're in high school or college, when life gets tough, do you know who you turn to when you really need a friend in high school or college? They're always there for you 24-7. Netflix. Oh, man. There is no friend to a high school or college student like Netflix. When their day is terrible, they binge. And we, as adults, like, oh, that's crazy. And then we go home from work and we sit down in front of the television that we have, but we just happen to use cable. Some of you, they still have cable. And then we use that or college football or a golf course or friends or anything. We distract ourselves to ignore what's really going on. We feel a sense, a call for something bigger and more in life. But instead of stopping and dealing with it, we stop and distract ourselves. If that is the modern way to deal with hopelessness. Here's the problem with that, though. At some point at night, you turn Netflix off, and the room is dark, and there's no noise, and there's everything that you left before you turned it on, sitting there waiting for you. You say, oh, it's waiting for you to be done. It can't, distraction can't provide hope there. If you look down to women in verse 4, it says, women, don't be... Don't consume, don't, I think it says, let me get, read it. Don't be a slave to too much wine. What is wine often used for in our culture? It's a distraction. Whether it be at a party to forget about what's going on or at your house. To go, don't, he says, don't, don't find your hope at the bottom of a bottle. He says, he says be careful there. Don't let it block you about really dealing with your stuff. Don't get distracted, sober-minded, clear-thinking, gospel-thinking. Next one I want to look on there, we'll, we'll um, pick on the older women one more time in this verse. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Not slanderers. And I started to think this week, why in the world? Slanderers basically means I use my words to attack you. Whether it be true or untrue, it can be slander. Whether it's just gossip or whether it's complete false, whether it's malicious or I say it's, you know, for a good reason. It's me using my words to put you down in order to prop myself up. And I started to think, why in the world would churches have a problem with this? Now, I know obviously our church doesn't have a problem with this, and that never happens here. But like, there's other churches out there, and it's going to shock you where gossip and slander happens. 
Uh, yeah, I heard the audible gasp. Uh, no, of course we have a problem with this. Why is this a problem in our congregation, in every congregation on the planet? Because there's a part of you that, and me that wants to find our hope in what other people say and think about us. And if I can come to you and put myself up at the cost of you, if I can look better and make you look worse, if I've got to do that, it's worth it to me. Because I need to feel valued. I need to feel like I am someone. And if it means taking someone else down to put myself up there, or if it means, oh, do you know what I know? I'm on the inside. You, you may not know this. I, I always hated this. I may not be able to tell you this, but, right, well, I'll just tell you anyway. No one ever says, I can't tell you this. And it's, oh, I have something. I guess I can let you. We have this in us to want to say, prop me up. Give me attention. Make me feel glorified and valued. And the problem is, we both know that's like putting water into an empty tub. Every kind and glorious thing you say to me, really, at the bottom of it, now we're told to encourage each other, right? We are. But that can't fill me up. My hope has to be in something stronger than what you think of me has to be in something better than that. Next one. Let me go down this. Uh, we'll look at the, we'll go to verse four. And so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, having been in Christian culture for a long time, I honestly think one of the biggest false sources of hope that I see in the Christian world is family. Now, I'm going to say this very carefully here. Family was not designed to be your source of hope. A source of joy? Yes. A source of encouragement? Yes. Push you on towards righteous things? But anyone I know who got married and their mindset was this, I'm going to find a girl and she's just going to complete me. She's Tom Cruise kind of moment. You complete me. That you're going to get married. And then when you get married, it's going to be so great. Everything that's messed up in you, she's going to fix. It's just because, like, honestly, you two of you are just like, you're like this. It's, she's going to fix it. It's going to be great. And then you get married. And 45 minutes after the honeymoon, when you get home, you're like, well, wait, wait a second. She doesn't actually fix what's wrong with me. You know what they do? They reveal what's wrong with you, correct? <laughs> Ma marriage is an amazing mirror of the soul. Uh, Bill said the only thing I remember, well, I remember several things about the actual wedding when we got married, but of the sermon, of the thing that Bill said in the sermon, he, he looked at me and he said, Jason, your job is not to make Allison happy, it's to make her holy. And he looked at her and said, your job is not to make him happy, it's to make him holy. See, if... I turn it into Allison's job to be my center of hope. I put an incredible amount of pressure on her, don't I? So then you decide to have kids. And you think, this can only help our marriage, right? Children should be, children are a blessing of the Lord. Surely my marriage will improve. And then you have kids, and the next thing you know, you're like, oh, wait, they scream at all hours of the night. Uh, and then that gets tough. You're like, why are they screaming? And that you realize that children are hard. And then your children get older, and you think, 
well, but you know, I've raised them well, and they should be, I was a great student, they should be a great student. They shouldn't have academic struggles. Or I was a college athlete, they should be amazing athletes as well. And then we start hoping in our children to fulfill these unfulfilled dreams that maybe we have, and then you see the pressure that that puts on that relationship and how that can damage that father-son, mother-daughter, father-daughter relationship, and then you see all of these things start to damage the family. See, the, here's the center of the problem. Your family was not made by your creator to be your source of hope. It, yes, it provides joy. Yes, it should be an encouragement. It is not a source. Because just like you, your wife or husband is broken. And because your kids have your Adam-given DNA, they will be broken. And so as you look to them to provide your deepest satisfaction in this world, what you will do as you pine and push for that is you will put a breaking level of pressure on your family. I encourage you, If I'm young in my marriage, and so I look in a room full of people who've been married, some of you, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever that may be, and I'm a baby in marriage. I'm in between year five and six. And even in this, I can tell you, if you're in this room and you're engaged or newly married, marriage is hard enough. It doesn't need that added pressure. Raising children is hard enough. It doesn't need that added pressure. Did you see the advice he gave the women here? Love your husbands. That doesn't mean make them feel great all the time. It means as Christ loved you, sacrificially serving and pointing towards God's glory, you make your goal today with your family to sacrificially serve your family, pointing them towards God's glory. Whether they are a 4.0 athlete or not, whether they are the husband you envisioned him to be or not, your job remains the same and your hope remains in the same source. And the last one as we wrap up, look down. This, is the, this one just kind of blows my mind. Look down to verse 9. Bond servants, that should say, uh, some, some of your versions of the Bible say slaves there. 25 to 33% of the Roman world at any point during that time period were slaves. So a lot of the early Christians were people who were slaves coming into the church. This is what he tells the slaves to do. Okay, He says, slaves, you are to be submissive to your own master in everything. They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not stealing, or your Bible might say pilfering, but it means stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He looks at men and women who had so few rights. Literally, they could be killed if their master found legal reason to do it. Their master had the right to put them down. He looks at that group of people and says, you know what your job is, guys? Go out there and be such a good slave that you convert your master to Christ. He looks at people who had no freedom, no control, and no comfort, and he goes, hey, you go show your master that you're free and they're not. And I think of us as a culture, Hilton Head as a culture, if I said, what do we really struggle with? And I don't mean our church, I mean our island. We crave comfort and we crave control. Because it's almost a birthright in this area. And you know what we've learned, though? Whether it be from the economic crisis of almost 10 years ago, whether it be from Hurricane Matthew of a year and a half ago, you know what we've learned in all of that? And I hope you've learned this out of it. Those things aren't guaranteed. 
And not only are they not guaranteed, think about some of your experiences during Hurricane Matthew, where you saw God at work and you remembered what God had done and it reminded you that he is your source of hope, not the roof on your house, not the money in your bank account, not the freedom of daily life control. And your heart goes, oh, he's my source of hope. And I just leave you with this, a real prayer. And I can't believe God has let me. I have the worst memory ever. Uh, if I've met you, I don't know your name probably, unless I'm married to you and or you're one of my children. Uh, I have a terrible memory. And honestly, some days I can't remember their names. Uh, but God has allowed me to remember this one thing for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. He's allowed me to remember a prayer I made when I was in 10th grade. I had been a Christian for several years, and I had failed my driver's test three times. And I had heard a sermon on the return of Christ. And this is a real prayer. It's almost word for word. I don't have the exact word for it, but it's pretty close. I said, Lord, please don't come back until I drive. Let's put off eternity with the glorious God. And actually, I have a picture of it. To make it even stupider, this was the car I would have, dri- would have driven. That's a 1982 brown Olds Cutlass Supreme. Actually, mine was brown top, too. I couldn't find the exact perfect one. Um, it was 1996, I think, something like that. So it's 14 years old, so you can imagine the shape an Olds Cutlass Supreme is after 14 years of life. I was so desperate to drive an Olds Cutlass Supreme, 14 years old, that I said, God, please hold off returning to earth. The ridiculousness of that God's good, right? I mean, God's good. Like, he's like, listen, look how ridiculous you are. You need to see this very clearly. I'm like, oh, there it is. There's where I am. I'm ridiculous. Um, to remind me that there is nothing in this world that is able to bear the weight of your hope. In fact, a very famous hymn says it better than I should have just gotten up here, read it one time, and sat down. Some of you are like, yes, please. Um, I think you'll know it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm not going to sing. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's it. Anything else that promises you hope is going to sink. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how quickly we forget the hope we have in you. How quickly my heart turns to the desperation to win the approval of the people in front of me. But you are the solid rock on which we stand and all other ground sinking sand. Thank you for that truth. Amen.